Hi everyone, and welcome to Mind Body Green's Clean Beauty School. I'm your host and beauty director, Alexandra Engler. So for this episode, we are going to be talking about cosmetic regulation, or perhaps more aptly, the lack of regulation in the personal care industry. So one thing, you know, we talk about on this podcast quite a bit is the fact that these buzzwords like clean and no lists don't really mean anything. They're not, as so many people point out, regulated. This has given rise to retailers, media companies, and third-party organizations creating their own standards of safety and quote-unquote clean ingredients. Another point we often bring up is how many more ingredients are banned or regulated in the EU versus what's regulated in the U.S. by the FDA. An often cited stat is that the EU has banned over 1,400 chemicals, while the U.S. has just under 20. I will say I do try and avoid this stat because it is a bit misleading when you dig into it, as many of the ingredients that are banned on this list aren't ingredients that would have been used in personal care products anyway, whether that be in the EU or the U.S., But I digress because the more important bit of information is that the EU has the authority to regulate these wide variety of chemicals, whereas as you'll come to understand throughout this conversation today, the FDA really doesn't. So perhaps this should go without saying, but it is a topic that gets pretty convoluted and confusing and nuanced pretty fast, right? But when you really dig down to the core of the problem, it's that personal care laws in the United States are outdated and unhelpful. Luckily, many people are trying to change that. And so to help me understand the state of the union on cosmetic regulation and where we hope to go in the future is Melanie Banesh. She is a legislative attorney who works with the Environmental Working Group. The Environmental Working Group often goes by the EWG for short, and they are a nonprofit third-party organization that acts like a watchdog in the beauty space as well as other spaces. So without further ado, Melanie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm so excited to have this conversation today just because I think there is so much confusion out there on behalf of the consumer about what, what is regulated, what isn't, why the FDA seems to be so much further behind than the EU or, you know, why there is the, these needs for third party regulatory organizations like the EWG. So I think, I think this is an opportunity where we can really just kind of lay the groundwork of where we are right now. So I'm so excited to chat about this, but first off, I would just love to have you introduce yourself and tell your story. How did you get involved with, you know, cosmetic litigation and regulation? What, what brought you to the EWG? Sure. So I am currently the legislative attorney at the environmental working group, and I have been with EWG for almost seven years, which is hard to believe. And I I came to EWG right out of law school. EWG actually has a cosmetics law fellowship called the Stabile Fellowship, which was inspired by a journalist named Tony Stabile, who back in the 70s did a lot of investigative journalism around the health harms from certain cosmetics chemicals and exposed just how unregulated this industry is. And so when one of her family members came into some money and was looking to honor her legacy, they actually approached Georgetown Law School with a fellowship and they were able to identify EWG as really the leader in the nonprofit space working on addressing this injustice. And so 
I came into EWG actually specifically to work on this very niche issue of, of cosmetics regulation. And, and before that, as a law student, I've and, and prior to going to law school, I've always really cared about the environment. I've cared about public health and really enjoyed a lot of the consumer protection work that I was able to do in law school. And so when this opportunity came up at EWG, even though at the time, I, I think like most Americans, was really unaware of this regulatory issue. I think like most Americans, I assumed we have a government agency, the FDA, that is responsible for making sure that, their pro that these products are safe. I trust the government. I trust that there's a government watchdog out there looking at these products and, and hadn't realized just how much of sort of the wild, wild west it is when it comes to regulation of these things that we put on our bodies every day. But that, of course, changed very quickly once I got to EWG and started digging into the issues and started realizing just how inadequate our regulatory system is. Yeah, I mean, that leads right in to my, my next question. Let's lay the groundwork for this discussion. What is the state of the union on cosmetic regulation you know, what is what is actually banned or regulated within the FDA legally? And yeah, can you just illuminate us on what they actually do look out? Sure. And it, it may be helpful just to take a quick step back and, and clarify what we're talking about when we're talking about cosmetics. So throughout this yes. interview, I may say cosmetics, I may say personal care products, but I want to make clear that those two terms are are interchangeable. Cosmetic is just the term of art that's largely used by the by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is the regulatory agency that is responsible for regulating cosmetics. And so a cosmetic is, is fairly broadly defined. It's anything that is, uh, and this is the legal definition, anything that is intended to be rubbed, poured, sprinkled, or sprayed on, introduced into or otherwise applied to the human body or any part thereof for cleansing, beautifying, promoting attractiveness, or altering you. And so what that means really is, I think sometimes when you say the word cosmetic, people think of makeup. And so they're thinking of your lipsticks, your blushes, things worn primarily, but not exclusively by women. And but but really, it's much broader than that. This also includes your shampoos. It includes your deodorants. Uh, it includes some kinds of toothpaste. It includes any sort of body washes, lotions. And so and, and it also does include our, our makeup products. But it it is a large universe of products that many of us are putting on our bodies every day. And that's important because when you think about the ingredients that are in these products, these are what scientists would talk about as repeat exposures. So there may be the same ingredient that's in your shampoo, that's also in your lotion, that's also in your moisturizer, that's also in your mascara. And so as you go through your morning or nightly routine, you, you may have multiple exposures to the same chemical, but then there are also daily exposures. And if you're putting something directly onto your skin, it may then get absorbed into the blood system. And so understanding how those different ingredients interact with the body is really important in making sure that they are used in amounts sort of that take into consideration your likely whole exposure from all of the different ways that this ingredient is used and also what that lifetime exposure may look like 
is really important. And unfortunately, that's just not a calculus that our current regulatory system it's um, not at all. Is takes into consideration. So when we talk about cosmetics, we're talking about this large universe of products. They are regulated. They are under the jurisdiction of the Food and Drug Administration, and they are regulated by the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938. The Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 is a broad bill. If you look at the bill, it's about 800 plus pages long. Almost every part of that bill has been given meaningful updates by Congress in the last 80 years since it's passed, except the section on cosmetics. And of those 800 plus pages, only about a page and a half are designated, are, are dedicated to regulating cosmetics. Only a page and a half. Yes. And so there's wow. essentially two sections on cosmetics exclusively. And it says that your cosmetics cannot be adulterated. And what that means is they can't be contaminated with bacteria. They can't contain ingredients that the agency knows are injurious to health, and they can't be misbranded, which means the FDA has said there are a certain number of things that you have to include on your label. And if you don't include those things on your label, then there's a problem with your cosmetic. But that's really it. So your cosmetics, they can't poison you. Yeah, and, um, good. <laughs> and you have to disclose some information on the pack to consumers, but that's, that's really about it. And so over the course of the 80 plus year history of this authority, this has historically been one of the smallest offices in the FDA. The cosmetics industry has changed dramatically over the course of those 80 years, but the regulations really haven't kept up. And as a result, we've only banned or restricted nine ingredients for health or safety reasons, even though there are thousands of ingredients that are used in cosmetics, many of which are banned in, in Europe and in other places, but the FDA just really hasn't been looking. So what's the holdup there? Why aren't they looking? And what is the the hurdles to get them to look at it? Like, why hasn't this been updated? Well, in terms of what FDA is doing with their current resources, there's, there's certainly a, a lack of resources. There's a lack of authority. The FDA doesn't have any recall power like they do with food and drugs. The FDA doesn't have uh, mandatory registration. So it's hard for them to even know the whole universe of people that are making cosmetics. Doing some of these safety reviews, so having scientists take a look at all of the literature, take a look at all of the different ways that a, a chemical is used in a cosmetic and then used in other products and figuring out what the risk is, that, that takes some time and resources, and FDA, I think, just hasn't had, hasn't had the, the funding that they need, and also, I, I don't think, has a lot of faith in their ability to ban or restrict some of these ingredients, given the high bar that is included in the statute right now that says that for something to be adulterated, it has to be in, injurious to health. It has to be, you know, poisonous or deleterious, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's certainly a barrier. And then over the course of the last 80 years, the cosmetics industry has done a very good job exempting themselves from regulation. And so they, in 1938, did a good job limiting the scope of that initial authority that the FDA had. And over subsequent years has has done made a persuasive case to Congress or has convinced Congress, at least, that there's nothing to see here. And yeah. we've, you know, we're we're fine operating on an honor system. 
I will say that has that has started to change in the last 10 or so years, particularly as consumers have become a lot more interested in what is in their products. I think consumers have gotten a lot smarter in realizing just because something is on the shelf doesn't mean that someone's been checking. Consumers are increasingly concerned about their own chemical burden and are wanting to do more to keep their family safe. And we try to provide resources to help them do that. And so as there has been more and more consumer interest in this issue, I think there are a number of cosmetic companies who have realized that it, it's actually to their benefit sure. to, have, uh, to have FDA weighing in on safety, because otherwise there's a lot of information out there and it's hard for consumers um, to know what to believe and to know what's safe, to know what's not safe. And so having an independent regulator weigh in and say, yes, you can use this. No, you, can, you can't use that. That's actually beneficial. And so a large number of cosmetic companies have started to get involved in this process of updating FDA's authority. And so there have been a couple of comprehensive bills introduced in Congress beginning in 2015 that have had support from NGOs like EWG and also support from the cosmetic companies. And some of those bills have have made it fairly far along in the process. Can we talk about a few of them? So the Personal Care Product Safety Act. Sure. Uh, is is the comprehensive bill. This was introduced by Senators Feinstein and Collins in the Senate. And then a very mm-hmm. similar bill was led by Representative Pallone in New Jersey. Representative Pallone happens to be the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which is the committee that has jurisdiction over this issue. And so his commitment to this issue is really a good sign for legislation moving forward. I think one of the obstacles has been that the same committees in Congress that are responsible for regulating our cosmetics are also responsible for Congress's oversight and legislation on all FDA issues. And so what that means in the last year, of course, is that a lot of those staff have just been overwhelmed trying to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that that has gotten in the way of some of these other FDA-regulated issues. But I think every year we get a little bit closer. Let's go back and lay a little bit more groundwork here. When we are talking specifically about what, what, what we're looking to regulate, are we looking to regulate specific ingredients? Are we looking to regulate classes of ingredients? You know, what are the main priorities here? And like, what are we asking the FDA to get involved in? Certainly. So I think a primary goal is to modernize FDA's authority. And a big part of that is creating a mandate that they actually systematically look at the ingredients that are used in cosmetics and start with the universe of ingredients that we're concerned about, like phthalates, like formaldehyde, like some of these formaldehyde releaser, like parabens. So some of those ingredients that I think there's a lot of concern about creating a systematic process where FDA would have to review all of the scientific literature identify data gaps, work with companies to fill those data gaps if needed and get whatever science is missing, and then make a decision about whether those ingredients should continue to be used in personal care products or if they need to be restrictions on how we use them or if we just shouldn't use them at all. So that's certainly a big part of it. But then there are other things like adverse event reporting, 
So this means if, if you tell a company that you have used their product and that product has caused you harm, for example, it's made your hair fall out, you got a chemical burn, you experienced a lot of irritation as a result of using that product, and you report that to the manufacturer, to the company that you bought it from, under current law, they have no obligation to turn that information over to the FDA. Sure. And wow. We saw, this, we saw this with when shampoo, a lot of women lost their hair. FDA received a few hundred complaints, which was a, a high number for FDA to receive. But FDA later found out that the company had received 20,000 complaints. And so that's a real example of how that keeps FDA in the dark when there's no obligation for companies to report what, what are called adverse events to the agency. And so creating that obligation for reporting is important. It's also important for FDA to, to be able to recall products mm -hmm. if needed yeah. in, the, in the rare case um, that something is so dangerous that it should no longer be on the store shelves. It's also important for companies to have to register just a simple act of saying, hey, FDA, we are making these products that you regulate and here is where we are located. And so if there's a pro problem with one of our products, you will be able to find in contact. Ingredient reporting to the FDA so that FDA has a sense of a whole market use of a chemical so that they can make better calculations about exposure across the sure. population. That's and how really interesting to be exposed to a chemical. So right now, all of that reporting is totally voluntary. And even what are called good manufacturing practices. So this is the idea that you are making your products in a clean facility, that you are keeping certain kinds of records about your batches so that if one of your batches becomes contaminated or there's an issue, you can quickly trace all of those, every product that was tied to that batch and quickly get it off the shelves if need be. All of those requirements are, are, are not actually requirements. They're all voluntary. So these good manufacturing practices, the idea that you're not, not manufacturing in a facility where your product could become contaminated with rat feces. That's voluntary under current law. And so creating some mandatory good manufacturing practices is another important component of, of modernizing FDA's authority. So I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this. And as, you know, somebody who is a beauty editor, but also a consumer, somebody who uses products every day, I'm thinking to myself, I would hope this is the least a beauty company could do for me, their consumer. So what is beauty company's arguments against these these regulations against updating the FDA's purview on regulations, because I would hope that, you know, they're all practicing these good things anyway. So, you know, what, I mean, this is me just asking out of curiosity, like what, what is the, the counter argument to this? Sure. So, and I, and I will say there are a lot of companies that are supporting additional regulation and including some of the major manufacturers like Johnson and Johnson, Unilever, sure. Procter and Gamble, as well as many small and medium-sized clean beauty companies that recognize that FDA's authority is out of date, that it needs to be modernized. So she just mentioned a few big beauty conglomerates like Procter and Gamble, Johnson and Johnson, and Unilever. But I will point out that L'Oreal and a few other larger beauty companies support this as well. But just to explain the scope of these conglomerates reach, I want to tell you the brands that these parent companies own. 
So Johnson & Johnson owns Johnson's personal care products, Neutrogena, Clean & Clear, Aveeno, and Rock, as well as a few other brands. Procter & Gamble owns Pantene, Head & Shoulders, Old Spice, SK2, Secret, Herbal Essences, Ivory, Olay, Snowberry, and more. L'Oreal owns Garnier, It Cosmetics, Bastien, Urban Decay, Mizani, Vichy, Dermablend, Redkin, CeraVe, La Roche-Posay, Lancome, Shoumara, Maybelline, Aquaphor, Matrix, Biotherm, L'Oreal themselves, Essie, Kerastase, Pureology, Kiehl's, SkinCeuticals, uh, there's even a few I didn't mention in there. Unilever owns Dove, St. Ives, Pons, Axe, Lux, Nexus, Caress, Suave, and they also own more too. And I say this to provide context to why it is so vital that we get these parent companies on board. They control so much of the market that working with them is one of the most influential ways that you can see meaningful change. And 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 I think they would say that they're already adopting these practices, that they may already have to comply with some of these regulations in Europe. But there's always going to be a, set, a subset of industry that just doesn't want to be regulated. They don't want the government looking at their records. They don't want the government being able to dictate how how they run any of their operations. They don't want to be subject to recalls. And they think that this honor system that they are currently operating under is working just fine. Hmm. Okay. So we know that there are obviously hurdles in, in updating the FDA's regulatory purview, but we also know that there are some bans that are happening at the state level. But California is probably the most famous mm -hmm. so far. I, I believe Maryland as well. Can we talk about that a little bit and, you know, why why this is happening at the state level in some regard and, you know, what what this means for the rest of the rest of us? Absolutely. And I will say this is an issue where states really have been leading the way in particular okay. because the government has the U.S. federal government, the federal Congress has been so slow to update this authority because the federal FDA has been so slow to use what limited authority it does have to, to regulate in this space. And so states have really stepped in, as they often do, to try and fill some of that void. And, and California absolutely has been a leader in this area. So last fall in September of 2020, California became the first state to ban 24 chemicals in personal care products. Some of those chemicals uh, that are likely familiar to your listeners include mercury, formaldehyde, per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which we can talk a little bit about more. Those are the PFAS forever. Yes, chemicals. I definitely have some questions about those yeah, later. <laughs> um, certain, certain phthalates. And so this is really a groundbreaking bill and, and really goes to show that, and, and I will say the Personal Care Products Council which is the primary trade association for the cosmetics industry, actually supported that bill. And so it goes to show that some of these really toxic ingredients that are sometimes used in cosmetics, even the industry agrees that we don't really need them. And yeah. so uh, that was really a groundbreaking moment in regulation. And then this spring, Maryland passed an identical bill. So these 24 chemicals are now banned in, in two states. And I think what will happen is companies across the country will reformulate to meet California standards, and that's going to make consumers safer in every state. 
And I would assume some of that is like you noted, I think some some beauty companies just want to start doing this regardless, but I would assume they have to reformulate just because why would they have two different formulas? Like one for California, one of the rest of the country, right? Absolutely. Although I will ask you this question and I I've heard that this is practice and I, I guess I don't have any any confirmation. So I, I'm curious, is it true that some, some beauty companies will formulate something that is sold in the EU and then have a different formulation that's sold in the States? Uh, I think that does happen sometimes. Okay. That's very frustrating to me. Okay. So we know that California and Maryland have, have their, you know, their, their bands out and they, they are, you know, leading some charge in some ways. Is this happening at any other States? And, you know, is there... Is there any other ingredients bans that are happening at the state level that we know of or that, you know, we that you're working on in some capacity or you're involved in? So it looks like there is some state level initiatives trying to ban toluene and formaldehyde in nail products. Triclosan is another ingredient that's often used in hand sanitizers and body cleaning products that some states are trying to ban. A few labeling initiatives a uh, few disclosure bills. So there there are other states that are are engaging in this space. And in New York actually has a chemicals and cosmetics bill that was introduced this, this session. Okay. So there's there's smaller stuff out there. But you mentioned this PFOS. There's there was a study that showed that these had showed up in like some like 50% of makeup products out there, you know, just something crazy. And I'll I'll include that that report in the show notes for for our listeners. Okay, so I'm just actually going to pop in here and explain this PFAS study that I just mentioned. So recent research conducted at the University of Notre Dame and it was published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology Letters found some pretty alarming news. So about half of U.S. and Canadian cosmetics contain these PFAS. They were most common in waterproof or water-resistant formulas, so you often see those in mascaras, long-wear lip products, foundations even. The use of these is so widespread and unregulated that board-certified dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bowe, who is a MindBodyGreen collective member, has even advised people to avoid using any makeup product that is marketed as waterproof or long-lasting until we have a better idea of the issue at hand or PFAS are better regulated. I I would love to have you explain uh, what these are and why we are trying so hard to get them banned or regulated and, you know, the the No PFAS in Cosmetic Act and what that is. Can you just tell us more about this? Because this is kind of scary stuff. Yeah. So PFAS stands for Pern Polyfluoral Alkyl Substances. Say that three times fast. (laughs) I Uh, I can't. (laughs) So and PFAS are sometimes referred to as forever chemicals. And the reason they're referred to as forever chemicals is because once they get into the environment, they don't break down. They're very persistent. They're one of the most persistent chemicals known to mankind. And so they've been in production since about the 1940s. And all of that pollution into the environment since we began producing them now 70 years ago, all of that stays in the environment because these chemicals don't break down. And then they also can build up in the human blood and other organs and sometimes have long half-lives, meaning that it can take decades for them to leave leave your body. And they're associated with various health effects of concern, including an increased risk of some kind of cancer, thyroid issues, kidney issues, hormone disruption, uh, a host of reproductive issues, and, and 
perhaps most concerningly right now, have been shown to make vaccines less effective and cause other immune system harms. And so there's a lot of reasons to be very concerned about the health effects. And they're also very widely used chemicals. So cosmetics is just one of many uses. These chemicals um, were used to make Teflon, used in nonstick pans. Okay, so this is gonna be a short PD note and it is gonna be a little bit different than the ones I normally give, but this is exactly the reason why you are actually advised to get rid of your quote unquote nonstick pans when they are scratched or they are damaged or after you've had them too long or you know, even why you're advised not to use high heat with them because these PFAS chemicals can make their way into your food and so you are ingesting them. Additionally, one piece of advice I often get from dermatologists and hairstylists is that you should use iron skillets as the iron will again make its way into your food and then you have additional source of that mineral. Didn't think you'd be getting cooking advice in a beauty podcast, huh? As sort of waterproof coatings on very coats, stain resistant coatings on carpeting and furniture used in food wrappers so that your burger grease doesn't get through the paper and get all over your lap. So a lot of food packaging uses also used for decades by the military in firefighting foams, a special kind of firefighting foam that they made to put out these jet fuel fires. And so when you think about a firefighting foam, they are discharged really in gallons per second. And so you have a ton of chemicals that are just released into the environment, including PFAS that then gets into drinking water that again can be used to irrigate food crops. And so then it gets into the drinking water, it gets into the food and it gets into us. And cosmetics really just add to this exposure that all of us, frankly, already have. The CDC estimates that I think something like 99% of people have some degree of PFAS in their blood already because of these exposures. And so PFAS is used in cosmetics um, as, as waterproofing. So some of your waterproof mascaras or to just make things go on a little more smoothly. So it's found in some foundations and, and lotions. And it's one of what we would call a non-essential use. This is, um, you know, not every cosmetic has PFAS in it and no cosmetic really needs to have PFAS in it. And so this is really one of the areas where we should just stop using PFAS and it's going to stop the production. It's going to slow down the production of PFAS because you're eliminating use from the marketplace. You're going to reduce consumer exposure because they're not going to be exposed directly from those products anymore. And then any manufacturing facilities that are making these cosmetics and using those PFAS, they would no longer be releasing that PFAS into the environment through their wastewater or or through other means. And so identifying these ways that we no longer need to be using PFAS and just stopping them is a really important part of solving this complex problem that we've created from PFAS chemicals. And so the No PFAS and Cosmetics Act has been introduced in the House and Senate. It's a bipartisan bill in both chambers, and it's very straightforward. It just says within nine months, the FDA has to write a rule saying that PFAS are banned in cosmetics. Okay. I mean, does that, does that create a lot of issues for cosmetic companies? 
I mean, do a lot of people have to go back and reformulate? You said that they they show up in a lot of formulas. So they some companies will have to go yeah. and reformulate. And I think part of what FDA would write into that rule, they would propose a rule, they would take comment, they would figure out exactly how much time industry needs to make that change. But a lot of these companies are able to reformulate fairly quickly. Sure. They are reformulating their products all of the, in response to regulatory changes, just in, in response to changes in consumer preferences. And many companies have already, L'Oreal, I think most prominently said, there's no reason for us to be using PFAS and we're getting out of the market. I think L'Oreal announced in 2018 that they would get out of the market. And I think other cosmetic companies are, are ultimately going to support this legislation. And so we are starting to see more momentum in the marketplace of companies moving away from this totally unnecessary use of PFAS. Sure. So this is a follow-up question that's a little bit tangential, but it, it, it speaks on something that you had mentioned in your last answer. This idea of exposure and, you know, I think so often the argument that you hear in traditional beauty media is that the amount of these various ingredients that we deem, you know, problematic for X, Y, Z reasons, they say, well, you know, it's formulated in such an amount in beauty products that it's not as of any concern or it's not shown to be um, formulated at levels that that should give us pause. And so, you know, why... Why are we concerned about this? And I think that this is a good example because it does, you know, it, it it shows that, well, even if it's not formulated to a high degree in these beauty products, we are exposed to, you know, PFAS in various other ways. And so, you know, I'm curious, what do you say to people who make that argument about exposure? Because that is something that I am charged with all the time, you know, this 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 exposure argument. And sometimes I do struggle with answering it. So I'm curious, you know, how how should people approach that? Yeah, I think I think a lot of times those arguments aren't looking at the whole picture. And so when you look at a chemical like PFAS, I'm not concerned only with the amount of PFAS that's in the product that I'm applying to my body in that product. Now, in isolation, that exposure may not be a really large risk, but I'm also thinking about all of the other ways that I'm also exposed to the same chemical. So if it's PFAS, my carpeting in, in my old apartment is probably coated in some sort of PFAS nonstick coating. If, if I had a baby, my baby would be crawling all over that carpet and then putting its hands in it. If I go out and get fast food, I have no way of knowing if the fast food wrappers are coated in PFAS or even if you know my clamshell compostable food packaging, if that's coated in PFAS. If I have a rainproof jacket, I have no way of knowing if that's coated in PFAS. And then more significantly, I'm also probably being exposed to some amount of PFAS in my drinking water. I am, for most people who don't live near a contamination site, your most significant exposure to PFAS is through the food that you eat. So I have no idea how much PFAS is in the food that I'm putting into, the, into my body. And if I am someone who lives near an industrial facility or near a military base, then I was likely drinking water contaminated with PFAS for years before anyone ever identified the problem. And so if I'm in one of those communities, I become suddenly very concerned about any additional amount of PFAS that I'm putting into my body and exposing myself to. 
So one issue I think is, is just not looking at the whole picture of our exposure to chemicals. And PFAS is just one example. Many chemicals that are used in personal care products are also used in food packaging or are used in other household products or are used in multiple kinds of personal care products because we're not just using one a day. And so I don't think our regulatory system does a good job of thinking of those cumulative exposures. And then with a chemical like PFAS, I'm also concerned about where it's being manufactured and what kind of practices that manufacturing facility is, is engaging in. Are they uh, dumping most of that PFAS out in their wastewater? And is that getting then discharged into a local stream or river and then contaminating the drinking water of people downstream? We don't really have a good way of knowing that right now because those discharges are also largely unregulated. And that's getting a little bit outside the scope of the cosmetics conversation that we're having. I think it's an important thing to keep in mind because I do think so often people will say, well, it's it's such a small amount in these cosmetics, who cares? Well, this is why you care. And then the so- other thing to think about is just that these, these are products that we use every day. And so you think about the risks differently when you're thinking about a lifetime exposure. And so they're just incremental amounts that you're being exposed to. But what does that exposure look like over the course of 30 or 40 or even 50 years when you're getting that exposure every day? And so I think that's also an important big picture consideration. So the new Personal Care Product Safety Act, can you explain this to us? Sure, I'm happy to. So this is the big comprehensive package that has been introduced in the Senate. And in past years, a companion bill has been introduced in the House. And it would address a lot of those regulatory shortcomings that we talked about earlier. And so it would require companies to register with the FDA. It would require companies to tell FDA what's in their product so that they have a full market picture of how these ingredients are being used. It would require companies to report the adverse events that they receive from their consumers to the FDA so that FDA knows when these products are harming people. It would give FDA recall authority to take truly dangerous markets off the shelf in the rare instances where they may need to do that. It would require FDA to systematically identify ingredients that may be causing harm and do a comprehensive scientific evaluation of those chemicals and determine whether they need to be restricted in these products that we put on our body every day. And then it would require also those good manufacturing practices. So you would be required to make your products in a clean, sterile facility. You would have to keep good records on your products so that you could quickly identify and rectify any problems. And then it would also give FDA just more authority to kind of look under the hood of some of these companies that they've been tasked with regulating. So they could go and do inspections and make sure that you are keeping the records that you're supposed to be doing, that you're actually doing the health and safety studies that you should be doing before putting these products out into the marketplace. What's the reality that this could be, you know, passed or, you know, come to fruition? How hopeful are we? Well, in the Senate, it's a bipartisan bill, and they have really been leading on this issue for the last um, six years now. And in the House, we expect uh, Representative Pallone, who has really prioritized this issue in previous Congresses, to, to continue to prioritize this issue. And every year, I think we get a little bit closer. Well, that's exciting. I, I, you know, is there anything that people can do to help? I mean, is this something that people should be calling their representatives about? 
Absolutely, especially on an issue like this. I think just hearing from even a handful of constituents can really make a big difference in how a legislator thinks about this issue, whether this issue is on their radar. And so certainly people should call their representatives in Congress and say that they care about cosmetic safety, that they want to modernize FDA's authority, and that their representatives should support the Personal Care Product Safety Act. Yeah, I mean... To me, this all kind of sounds like no-brainers. Of course, people would want to have, you know, their beauty companies manufactured in a place that's clean. And I assume most people don't get involved just because they don't realize how how little a regulation is out there. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, we can get that word out and get people to to get involved in some capacity. You know, all it really takes is a quick call or a letter, you know. So I think that's a good, good way for people to help and feel that they can take some control back. And that is absolutely the case. We've even done polling on this that has shown that by and large, people assume just as I did, that there is a regulator on the watch and that we wouldn't be sold these products if we didn't have a guarantee that they were safe. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. So I'm curious, why is the EU so much better at this than we are? You know, why are they, why have they banned so many more chemicals and what is the glaring gap between the EU and us? So the EU really has a fundamentally different philosophy when it comes to regulating chemicals, not only in cosmetics, but across different uses of chemicals and different kinds of consumer products and industrial uses. And they engage in something called the precautionary principle which means that they are not going to let a chemical onto the market or let you use a chemical in a personal care product until they have received a certain amount of data and health and safety studies backing up your claim that it's safe. In the U.S., it's really the reverse. So we have more of a philosophy that we assume something is safe until proven otherwise. And so We don't have a pre-market system for personal care products. You can do sort of whatever you want and put it out on the market. And it's only later if FDA realizes that this product is actually dangerous and is actually probably going to cause consumer harm that they would then step in and say, actually, you can't use this ingredient. And so in some ways, we're we're the guinea pigs. (laughs) Sure. To me, this just kind of blows my mind because obviously a lot of people sell their products in Europe. And like, obviously, they figured out how to do it in Europe. It a little bit makes no sense to me why why we can't do it here. But obviously, you know, all these efforts that we were making are hopefully leading us towards towards that case. But you know, I'm, I'm curious, last question for you is, as somebody who studies this, and as somebody who is so involved in this, and you know, you have spent the last seven years, you know, inundating yourself with beauty products and regulations and cosmetics and et cetera. How do you take care of yourself? What do you look for in beauty products? What, you know, what sort of things are red flags to you? I'm just so curious. Well, this is probably a good time to say that EWG has a (laughs) healthy living app and we have a big database called Skin Deep where you can actually look up products and you can look up ingredients. And we actually also now have a verified mark that some products carry. And so if you are really worried about your own chemical burden 
and worried about how much chemicals you're being exposed to and what kinds of chemicals, you can look for that EWG verified mark, or you can go on our Healthy Living app and actually scan products or go on Skin Deep and, and, and try to make healthier decisions that way. But the burden really shouldn't be on consumers. That's why it's really important to me to fix the, our regulatory system so that it, it really is the government who's weighing in. You know, I always say that that is my biggest argument. What we talk about, you know, in informing the consumer is it's not fair to them. We shouldn't expect people to be chemists to figure no. out if what they're doing is is safe. And I spend a lot of my time talking about ingredients on our website, but it's it's not fair that the people need to be able to know this just just to treat their skin well. Absolutely. And we already have so much to worry about. And it is unfair that we are being asked to do more in order to keep ourselves and our families safe. I couldn't agree more. Well, listen, thank you so much. This was so informative. You know, I think it really, really shed the lights on what exactly is happening right now. What is the state of the union? And I, I so appreciate you coming on and answering these questions just because, you know, I do think that people, they just don't know this stuff. And if they do know this stuff, then, then you have more opportunities to make changes. And I, I just, I so appreciate you coming on here and explaining it to us so thoroughly and so thoughtfully and, and so effortlessly. Well, I'm um, thrilled to have been here. Really appreciate all the work that you do to inform your audience about these risks and encourage them to to visit our website if they want to learn more. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Hey guys, just popping back in here to say thanks for joining us this week at Clean Beauty School. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you're looking for more beauty content or just wellness content in general, don't forget to check out our website, mindbodygreen.com, our Instagram, mindbodygreen, and of course, our parent podcast, the Mind Body Green Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks again. See you next week.